0: Hello, and welcome back to the bunker. I'm Andrew Harrison. On this week's podcast, Quiet Goes the Don. As Donald Trump's time as president finally, finally ends, what needs to be done to undo the American carnage that he first warned about and then caused? Plus, Ireland has seen coronavirus rates soar to become, at one point, the most infectious country in the world. How did it happen? And what's the latest on Britain's battle against COVID-19? And Wikipedia is now 20 years old. How has the world's biggest encyclopedia changed the way we learn and what we think is true? All that and more on today's Bunker. Welcome back to the weekly panel edition of The Bunker. It's a busy week for Bunker Daily. As tomorrow, we say off the 45th president with a special daily where Jude Rogers talks to Mary Trump, psychologist, presidential niece, and author of Too Much and Never Enough, How My Family Created the World's Most Dangerous Man. They talk about what Mary's uncle is thinking right now and how his damaged psychology will affect America's future. Subscribe on your favourite app so you don't miss it. And if you're a Patreon subscriber, you will get it early, of course. First things first, though, let's meet today's panel. First up, hello and welcome to Recovering New Labour Spin Doctor and Times Radio host, Aisha Hazarika. Hello, Aisha. Hello. How's things?
1: Oh, just brilliant, like jazz cards Living my best life.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Living live the dream. On your old patch, Labour are are actually giving the government quite a lot of trouble this week with their uh, Opposition Day debate on the cut to universal credit. Why are the Tories trying to cut benefits in the middle of a pandemic? How is this remotely a good look?
1: Well, it's not a good look um, at all. And this was um, an increase to universal credit by sort of, £20 a week, which uh, Rishi Sunak is looking to cut again. Um, I think it's sort of from around April. And it just feels like a very unfair time to be doing this. So many people are really struggling at the moment through no fault of their own because of this global um, pandemic. And um, it just seems... Also, it's just not a good look for him as well, because he is like... Mm such a rich person in politics i mean i remember george osborne telling me god rishi sunak is really bloody rich and that is george osborne (laughs) telling me that right Mm -hmm. you know (laughs) it's like this this is new levels of this is like nosebleed levels of rich kind of thing so it's Mm. it's a it's a really um it's a really bad look but what i think is hilarious is how the tories instead of actually grappling with the issue of um you know, cuts to, to lots of, by the way, Labour people who lent them their vote, people in the red wall seats, and of course the fiasco over school meals. They're now yes. making themselves to be victims and saying Boris Johnson has put a note out saying, "Oh, um, we're going to abstain because nasty people are going to be horrible to Tory MPs, particularly women, who 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 sort of um, don't vote the right way." This is the same person who, when Paula Sheriff, when she was an MP, begged him in the House of Commons to sort of call off the dogs in terms of Brexit because female MPs. Were having a hard time, he kind of laughed in her face and said, bah humbug, this is a man who, you know, made all his comments about Muslim women and, and attacks on Muslim women went up and he's never mm. apologised, so it is quite extraordinary and the other favourite, I had a Tory MP on my show this week saying, oh, Labour's just playing politics, what the hell do you expect Labour to be playing? Yeah. but See, like honestly, it, it's just <laughs>
2: ludicrous.
0: Also on today's panel, comedian and broadcaster Ahir Shah Welcome back to the bunker, Ahir.
2: Hello Andrew How are you doing? It's. Uh, I don't know if you've still. Uh, I don't know if you've seen outside, but it's all still happening.
0: It's all still happening. The world is still going on. So, did you spot the giant shellfish protest in uh, Westminster earlier today? In a strange, reverse, bizarre world echo of the Brexit Armada back in 2016, they've all been fined for protesting about the uh, the way the uh, the fishing industry has been dropped in it. Uh,
2: I did not uh, personally see the shellfish protest uh, because I live about a mile away from Whitehall and I'm allergic to all shellfish. <laughs> so I interpreted the entire thing as a sort of personal chemical attack mm. uh, but uh yeah I, I was aware that it was occurring
0: yeah i mean we have to avoid saying i told you so on on this and all, all our related podcasts but i mean this is a class this is literally i told you so the thing that you as an industry supported and in fact you were used as a totem to make brexit happen has come and bitten you i mean I, 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 is there a way out for the government on this one or are they going to just walk away from it so it's nothing to do with us
2: Well, I mean, obviously it was going to happen. It's not like, you know, it's not I can't believe leopards would eat my face in this situation. It's more I can't believe piranhas would eat my face. But yes, the piranhas have eaten your face. (laughs) uh, And that was sort of inevitable. So, you know, that's and the way that they're going to get away with it is that eventually people will just stop caring. Uh, Like in the same way that I have friends who are performers who've uh, had work in the EU cancelled very recently on account of, you know, all of these barriers that weren't barriers, apparently. And it's just like with the fishing, people aren't going to care, because there's like six of us and six fishermen.
0: The particularly irksome thing about this was Mog's response that the fish are happy now, because they're British. And it's like, well, nobody, you know, nobody expects you to take this remotely seriously. But it's the turning of a serious thing into a silly little joke with nationalist fish in the Little Union Jack waistcoats that truly grates, isn't it?
2: Yeah, I mean, like at least in this one, he can confined himself to fish and not being uh, extraordinarily glib about human lives. So I suppose at least that's a step up. Can,
1: can I just can I just interject this point? The thing that I loved about that was he 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 did this like crap joke, and I hear it was like he had just it was like he just was like headlining at the comedy store and he was waiting for these waves of applause, and everyone just looked really uncomfortable. And then Lindsay Hoyle just basically told him to shut up. It was like <laughs> he was like expecting this adulation. Of and he got Lindsay Hoyle.
0: <laughs> yeah, the shepherd's crook. On a momentous week for American politics, we're delighted to be joined by UCL Global Politics Professor, creator of the Power Corrupts podcast, and our unofficial US News Desk correspondent, Brian Klass. Welcome back to the bunker, Brian. Thanks for having me. Uh, we've got lots of Trump later, but on a Power corrupts front, what is uh, Alexei Navalny playing as? He's gone back to Russia five months after nearly being killed in a Novichok attack. He was immediately arrested. What is he trying to achieve here? It seems... A little unwise.
3: Yeah, I mean, this is this delicate dance between dictator and opposition leader trying to overthrow the dictator. And what is trying to do is become a martyr. And Putin is all too happy to oblige. And this is the sort of the, the difficulty of the various incentives that they face, right? I, I did an episode of Power Corrupts called How to Be a Dictator in which I interviewed uh, Gary Kasparov. Mm-hmm. And he's basically saying, you know, look, Putin governs through fear. What he's doing with Navalny is trying to make an example of him so that everybody else in the country who's thinking, you know, I would like to stand up to Putin too, thinks, well, I'm going to get Novichok in my underwear if I do that, and I'm going to be banned from the country. And if I end up coming home, I'm going to end up getting arrested. So this sort of the kangaroo court around Navalny is is only to convey to people in the future that there are consequences to standing up to Putin. And Navalny is extraordinarily brave. I mean, his life expectancy i would not expect to be very long and there's been plenty of russian opposition leaders who have stood up to putin who have not lived to tell the tale if navalny uh, survives for you know 5 years in the future i would i would be surprised but it's uh, it's a very dangerous job that he's he's taken on and i think he will be uh, eventually made a martyr
2: i was genuinely shocked that they were able to fit his balls into a single ounce plane
3: <laughs> yeah impressive
0: Both the US and and the EU have condemned the arrest, but they haven't threatened any any consequences. How how near the top of Joe Biden's pile is this going to be, do you think?
3: You know, I think it gives Biden like an easy opportunity to break with Trump. And part of what Biden's going to want to do on day one is to say, America is back, right? That we we care about values that the United States has actually uh, said we care about for a very long time, but have been completely absent from US foreign policy for the last four years. So, you know, This would be a great opportunity for him to say, now there's a US president who's actually going to speak out against Vladimir Putin rather than praising him at every single turn. I mean, I, it's, it's amazing. We've gotten to the end of the Trump presidency and Trump had much harsher words, much more often for Meryl Streep who criticized him at various <laughs> times. And he tweeted angrily about than he has for Vladimir Putin who, you know, murders dissidents and tries to attack American democracy. It's just the most absurd situation. So Biden will try to, I think, draw a line in the sand and, and Navalny offers a very, very good opportunity for him to do exactly that.
0: So the end is nigh for Donald Trump. Joe Biden's inauguration moves closer, 48 hours and counting. The president is leaving office, having become the first commander in chief to be impeached twice. His battle against the impeachment charges may prove successful, but in terms of ownership and the direction of the Republican Party, it's possible that the damage is already done. Brian, Trump's leaving office. It's far from the last we're going to hear of him. The impeachment trial is going to come up. How do you think that will go? Are we going to see Republicans find their spines?
3: Well, there's a lot of times that people in politics do the right thing for the wrong reasons. And that might be one of these instances. Some of them will do the right thing for the right reasons, which is that they finally reach their breaking point And they they understand that Trump is a menace and they'll, they'll try to draw a line in the sand against him. But a lot of them are doing it for the wrong reasons, which is to say that he's now becoming powerless to actually hurt them. Um, that some of them who are in safer seats, who don't fear a Republican challenger from the right will say, you know what, I'd rather have 2024 be a presidential contest I can run in that doesn't involve Donald Trump. So they'll try to pass, uh, as part of the trial, they'll, they'll, they'll try to ban him from future political life, et cetera. So I think you know the, the one to watch is Mitch McConnell, who's currently the Senate majority leader, but very soon, and I say this with great excitement, very soon will become the Senate minority leader. Mitch McConnell, I think, might actually vote against Trump. If that happens, that gives a lot of political cover to the other people in the party to do the same. Uh, And what an ending it would be to Donald Trump's presidency if he were the first person in American history to not just be impeached, not just to be impeached twice, but to be convicted by the Senate, which has never happened before.
0: What's the future for people like Liz Cheney, who have come out much more boldly and have been rounded on by the kind of outrider pack and, and, you know, threatened with being primaried and so forth. Do you think that will come to pass for them?
3: Yeah, I think they will probably face Republican challengers in those districts, at least sponsored by, you know, the Trump wing of the party. There's a really toxic dynamic in the Republican party right now where the only way to become a national breakout star is to behave in increasingly unhinged Trumpian ways and to try to out-Trump Trump. And a great example of this is like, you know, there's this, there's this group of freshmen women, Republican Congresswomen who mm-hmm. have just gotten into Congress. And the only one that's broken out is this woman from Colorado, Loan Boebert, who is, you know, she made a show of going into Congress, setting off the metal detector and not letting them frisk her because she said she would carry a gun into mm-hmm. Congress, right? She, she, Called the day of the protest on January sixth the insurrection. This is our 1776 moment.
2: Which I just say being white sounds fucking amazing.
3: <laughs> Honestly, the things you can get away with out
2: uh, Let me tell really? you, it. it's unbelievable. Oh, <laughs> imagine that. Lovely stuff.
3: But it's, it's like- you know. But this is the point. You're you're totally right about that, obviously. But it's also that the point is that in that party, right? You only get rewarded. If you behave like that, because if you look at, at at her Twitter followers, she has half a million Twitter followers. All of a sudden, all the other people in the party who have just become elected, who are behaving in comparatively normal ways, and I say comparatively mm-hmm. because many of them are not behaving in normal ways, but they're not you know going through the metal detector with guns. They have fifteen thousand <laughs> or ten thousand Twitter followers. Nobody knows who they are. They're not getting booked on Fox News. So it's it's entrenched this dynamic in the party where you know out trumping Trump is the way to stardom. And that's why, you know, th- these people like Liz Cheney have probably not a very bright future in the party, because they're going against the grain of what the base wants.
0: In recent weeks, we've heard a lot about Trump pardoning people, and now he appears to be selling the pardons. Lobbyists are uh, walking around with a rate card, and uh, amongst the people uh, that are uh, involved are people who've been charged with actual criminal offences and convicted of criminal offences. Do we expect to see more of this in his in his final few, a few days of office? And can he, in fact, pardon himself?
3: Yeah, I think there's going to be a huge number of pardons um, You know, in, in the last 48 hours. I think the big question, so it's almost a certainty that he will pardon a series of people who are criminal associates, cronies, people with deep pockets who pay lobbyists, etc. What's the big question is whether he pardons himself or his family members hmm. or people like Steve Bannon. If you pardon someone, it's sort of like an admission of guilt, right? It's saying that they, they deserve a pardon, they need a pardon. His family members haven't been charged with crimes yet. He hasn't been charged with crimes yet. So that creates what's called civil liability, which means that even if he can pardon himself for federal crimes, he could get sued for civil damages, a.k.a. financial penalties by people who have been harmed by him. And they could say, look, he admitted guilt. He, he pardoned himself. The weird thing about this in the U.S. is that it's going to come down to a question of grammar, as strange as that seems, whether this is constitutional, because the Constitution says that the president can grant a pardon. And there's debate among legal scholars whether grant implies another person. Can you grant something to yourself? And that's literally what the debate <laughs> in the Supreme Court will be about.
0: It's, so That's the new... It depends what the meaning of is, is. Exactly.
3: (laughs) What have the events
0: of the past two weeks done to the Republican Party? Because it does look like the party has changed perceptibly since the invasion of the Capitol. Donald Trump Jr. declared it Donald Trump's Republican Party. Is that now
4: true?
3: Yeah, I mean there's basically two parties now. There's the elite party and there's the base. And the elite party wants to divorce themselves from Donald Trump as quickly as possible. The base the base still loves Donald Trump. And that that tension is going to be on display for the next 4 years I think as they sort of grapple with what it means to be a Republican. Donald Trump is facing some differences personally though that are very significant, which is that he is he's an international pariah and he's also a pariah with the US corporate community which is very different. So his ability to make money, which is something he needs, right? He's, he's got a lot of debt, like 500 million to a billion dollars of debt coming due soon. Uh, that's going to be a lot harder to cash in on if you have a situation in which you know, the corporate America views him as a reputational risk. They don't want to do business. I mean, New York City, it's amazing to know this, but Donald Trump actually had contracts with New York City in which he operated a carousel. I had no idea about this, <laughs> but now they have severed the carousel contract,
2: it just shows that what goes around. <laughs>
3: <laughs> We're absolutely right. What goes around comes around. <laughs> well, it's just the basic idea is that it's not just the carousels, right? The Professional Golf Association says they're not holding events at Trump's courses. If he can't get money from corporate America, where is he going to get money? Well, some people in his base. Maybe they might stay at his hotels, etc. But the other thing I'm worried about is the authoritarian regimes that he's basically been uh, championing for four years in the White House. He's going to try to cash in in Saudi Arabia, in Dubai, in Russia, maybe even. So that's a security risk for the US going forward, I think.
0: Brian, before I move on to to H&A, I want to ask you something. The two something that stood out enormously was the, the contradictory reaction from the base, who were simultaneously saying the invasion of the capital was was fake, it was antifa, it was a false flag. It's a bunch of people. It's the extreme left who invaded the capital to make Trump look Trump look bad. And simultaneously, it's 1776, and we've got to take our country back, and it's legitimate but at the same time, and often from the same people. What does this tell us about the, the, the mental state of the base at the moment?
3: Okay, so a significant chunk of Trump's base are conspiracy theorists. And I apologize for double-plugging Power Corrupts, but there's an <laughs> episode where I deal with conspiracy theorists, and I interview this guy named Chris French, who's an expert on the psychology of this. It's a, gra- it's a, a great ex- episode.
2: What did you say? It's a great episode. Oh, thank you. The whole podcast. I, I hardly recommend it. Stop listening to this and listen to that.
3: <laughs> so what, what he says, what he says on the episode that they've done studies on is that people who are conspiracy theorists hold completely contradictory views with no problem. So if you ask people what happened to Princess Diana and somebody says, you know, you say, do you think that the government killed her?
1: Well, no, because we all know it was Prince Philip.
2: (laughs) I mean, like, come on. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I, was, I was like, have you asked this question to any old brown women? Because the answer will always be the same.
3: <laughs> okay, so so assuming that you ask whether the government's killed her, right? The people who say that they think she has been killed by the government will also say that they think she's still alive. Ah. So this, it, it, you actually study them and you have totally contradictory views. That's why in the Trump base, you can have people say, "Oh, this was a fake protest; it was infiltrated by Antifa," and also, you know, we we should celebrate this; we we took our country back. So Aisha, he's an international
0: pariah now; he can't even get into Scotland. Uh, <laughs> she's been banned. You had an entertaining chat with the mooch this week, didn't you, Anthony Scaramucci, the penitent of the uh, of the the Trump years, Post, poster boy of Republican penitence. Do you think there are enough people like him?
1: Well, evidently not, because, you know, only 10 Republicans voted against him. And I think quite a lot of them won't come out and convict him um, in, in the Senate. But um, it is interesting. And because I did put that question to him at the end, I sort of said to him, look, you, you, I mean, you speak very passionately about about how much, how dangerous Trump is now, but, you know, you you ultimately helped him. Do you wish you could go back in time and 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 change it and i mean he says yes of course i i do but he said that nobody quite Imagined it could ever turn out like this. And I know, and um, Brian will say, "Hang on a minute." Some of us did, but I think the people who knew Trump and were close to him, like I also interviewed this woman who had worked with Trump as an executive for eighteen years, and she said what was fascinating is how his mentality and his kind of mindset and character changed during that time. At the beginning of her time working for him, she said, "You know, he could take advice from people. Um, you know, he was quite sort of jovial. He could definitely have." you know, a different point of view. But things really changed as he sort of got older and then his entire mindset changed and he does morph into sort of the kind of succession um, character. So... It is fascinating to speak to people like Anthony Scarmich and, of course, anyone else involved from the Lincoln Project, um, who are all mm-hmm. these Republicans. We've spoken to Steve Schmidt before um, on this podcast. But what's interesting, there's a lot of people quite angry with those people, those Republicans, who are i have now turned against Trump. But they're saying, well, hang on a minute. You kind of aided and abetted him in the beginning.
0: Do you think the chaos of the last four years have changed what Republican voters want from politics, let alone the Republican Party? I mean, Brian was just describing how uh, the the people who get attention within the new Republican establishment are the kind of, they're effectively the shock jocks of politics. They're they're, the the merchants of spectacle and entertainment. Is this what, you know, do we have to accept the fact that a lot of voters want that now? They want their politics to be hideous entertainment.
1: This is the really difficult question that not just America faces, but we face this here as well um, as as we debate on a regular uh, basis. You know, do you want a return to sort of sober, grown up, boring, snoozy, sleepy Joe sort of politics? Or do you want this kind of high octane, high adrenaline infotainment? That we have seen, you know, over the last um, four or five years, and I think the the difficulty that I think the Biden administration will will, will face, and, and I spoke to somebody who I think is a he's been close to him. He was a former advisor, and I think he's going to get a, a big job. He said this is the one of the big challenges that the Biden administration will face because when you have been kind of, you know, we're high on the sugar rush of dramatic news. You know, the one thing that Trump did do brilliantly, he was the world's best news producer you know Mm. he just created he he made news explode into this kind of you know never ending um sort of you know reality horror show and once people are used to that sort of sugar high it is going to be hard for them to 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 go back but one other point i just want to make from the anthony scaramucci interview he did this quote where he said um trump is at worst a russian agent and at best a, a useful idiot and i think he was a useful idiot, but he wasn't just a useful idiot. And Brian will will probably have strong views on this as well. He wasn't just a useful idiot to Putin. He's a useful idiot to every populist, despot, dictator, dodgy leader around the world, because they can now say, well, hang on a minute, the leader of the free world can be proven to be such an unhinged, dangerous maniac who will kind of deny an election, incite a bloodstained insurrection, don't come and criticize us how dare you criticize us and you know we're in a situation where there's obviously been a big um, election I- I- in Africa where the, um, the, the the loser is fearing for his life now in America we have a situation yeah, yeah, in Uganda yeah. we have a situation in America which is meant to be the one of you know the leading beacons of democracy the winner is fearing for his life.
0: Well, this is it. I mean, people, people talk about what's the legacy. What will Trump's legacy be? And you know, we can see it now. The capital is locked down and looks like a looks like a, a a military occupation, and has to be because the elected president fears for his life from a large chunk of the population. Yeah, that's you know. There's your legacy. And, and,
1: and, and just quick before we, move on, do you know who I'm? So, what I'm so worried about is, I mean, you know, it's like a green zone though there now. But this is not. This danger is not going to go away. The person who I'm so worried about is Kamala Harris. Because she mm-hmm. will be the absolute, like, living anathema to all of these, like, racist, you know, angry people. She's a woman, she's a minority, she's outspoken, she's on the left. And I really fear for her. I fear that she and her family are going to have a target on their back now, probably for the rest of their lives. I mean, it's it's sickening to say that, but that is Trump's legacy.
0: Yeah. Uh, here I was gonna go with a uh, like a hilarious <laughs> line about how it's the comedians who really have to feel sorry for all that material got because it's not really very funny just, just, just did sort of comedies need to make Trump into this cartoon kind of inure people against him do you think I mean it is literally two weeks ago I was talking about well we're in the comic final phase of trumpism because there's nothing comic at all about it.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know how much comedy has an impact one way or another, given that we all remember how tremendously successful Charlie Chaplin was at destroying fascism forever. <laughs> yes. Uh, so it's uh, it's all like that. And, you know, I guess people need someone or something to blame. Uh, and while I think that Jimmy Fallon was probably wrong to ruffle the guy's hair, and in this country we talk about... Um, putting boris johnson on have i got news for you a couple of times or whatever and everything but it does also seem a bit of a way of um taking responsibility away from the tens of millions of people who then vote for this thing and it's like you're not you're not supposed to actually vote for the fucker
0: <laughs> <laughs> on the bright side the inauguration is looking good jennifer lopez justin tumble Lake, demi lovato john bon jovi bruce springsteen john legend and lady gaga doing the national anthem in i hope the style of bad romance
2: <laughs> <laughs> that's great stuff good tally yeah. It's a sharp
0: Uh, contrast between the last one, which was like two country acts and that was it, wasn't it?
2: Yeah, and everyone else sort of sued them to stop them using their songs, didn't they? Uh, so yeah, at least, uh, the, the Democrats have the best tunes, I guess.
0: Brian, before we move on, I said at the top of the show, we talk about what's at the top of Joe Biden's agenda. And, uh, you know, he's going to have a, a host of executive orders to undo some of the damage that Trump's caused because we've just spent a large chunk of it talking about Trump because that's what Trump wants. What what do you think we should expect from the first few days of, of Biden in office?
3: Well, there's going to be a huge number of executive orders signed immediately at, uh, as soon as he's sworn in on Wednesday, um, rejoining the Paris Climate Accords, of course, a lot of other things like reversing the Trump travel bans to those Muslim majority countries, doing the cleanup job on the international stage, saying basically the U.S. is back on on, on some of these issues, moral leadership, trying to reunite children uh, at the border who were torn away from their families by the Trump administration. But the main thing that's going to be the focus is is COVID. I mean, he's going to try to do this hundred million vaccinations in in a hundred days um, which, you know, it sounds like a lot, but it's less than a third of the U S population. Um, and on top of that, there's going to be a COVID relief plan, uh, that he'll try to pass with some substantial, uh, economic, you know, support for ordinary people and also businesses as a result of COVID. So I, I expect that will define most of the early days, the, of the Biden presidency.
2: Can I just ask something off the back of that? Cause I'm a bit confused about the executive order stuff, obviously from a British perspective, not really having that amount of power vested in an individual. So is is it literally like Joe Biden can just write on a bit of paper and be like, this is the law now. Everyone do that. And then that gets put into place.
3: Yeah. So basically this is, this is your little civics, civics lesson 101. So <laughs> with three branches of government in the US, the executive, which the president has, is enforcing the laws that Congress writes. So anytime there's a law that involves enforcement sort of uh, leeway or discrepancies where the, where the president has some sort of you know ability to sort of decide what parts of it are enforced and how they're enforced, executive orders are theoretically supposed to allow them to change how the law is implemented. And so that allows a lot of things like, you know, the Paris climate change accords, you know, something where, where the U S president has a lot of latitude over foreign policy. So with an executive order, they can do it without an act of Congress, they can't spend money. So he can't like, like Trump couldn't build a wall with an executive order, but he could do things around the edges on immigration reform, which is why the child separation policy was part of implementing existing immigration law. So does that make Um, sense? Yeah. Yeah.
1: The other thing which I think is so interesting as time has progressed since the um, insurrection on Capitol Hill is that the more we find out about who were some of these people rioting, it has also exploded that myth that um, you know tr- Trump was entirely justified because it was all kind of Rust Belt workers having a really, really hard time economically. That sort of justified why he came to power. And actually what we're finding out now, this was a sort of middle class uprising and the more information that's coming out about the, the people that the FBI are, are, are going after, you know, they're staying at four star hotels, getting the business flight there. And I think that is, you know, there's been, the, the, the revi- there needs to be some kind of revision of history about why Trump came in and people need to name it and say, basically, he was, it was a cry to a racist beast. Um mm. and I think a lot of commentators, particularly here, have just clung to that sort of economic flyover country, all that sort of stuff, but actually a lot of that is bollocks.
2: Well uh, the economic anxiety thing has always been bullshit because also like most poor whites aren't fascists and it seems like a tremendous sort of uh, cop out uh in, in so many ways to say that oh that's that's what this is.
0: Well Brian, call it before we move on. Was we'll he now, after four years, can we say it he was a fascist?
3: Uh, the thing is, I, I, I'm really uncomfortable with using that term because I'm a, I, I study authoritarian. Then I'll
2: do it instead. <laughs> He's a fucking fascist. <laughs> I think.
3: I think for most people, they use that term there's, when you're when you literally like have your professional career around the sort of strains of authoritarianism. I I find it hard to lump him in the same exact category as you know Stalin and Hitler. Mm. Um, Jason Stanley, who's at Yale, who studies the history of fascism, calls him a fascist. Uh, mm. People like you know a, v- a variety of other historians do too, you know. I, I I still call him a very very dangerous authoritarian populist, but I mean, it's like it's like me arguing about the coup stuff, right? Like technically that wasn't a coup, but like mm. I understand why people use it as shorthand because political science terms are not the same in political science textbooks or political science teaching as they are in yeah. or sort of normal use in society. So. Yeah, I'm. I'm taking the cop out. I'm sorry.
2: I, I understand why you're doing this, Brian, but I think that you're being far too charitable, and I personally am not concerned about getting absolutely correct the brand of the jackboot as it's coming down on my face. <laughs> I'm more concerned about the uh, fact of the jackboot.
1: Or maybe maybe Donald Trump's like a new mutant variant of neo-fascist.
0: <laughs> oh, new fascism. Try it. It's different. <laughs> <laughs> On top of new strains of coronavirus and travel corridor bans, one of the most disturbing stories of the past week was that Ireland, previously a strong performer in terms of fighting COVID, has suffered a sudden spike in the disease. As The Economist put it, the country, once a COVID success story, is now contending with one of the worst officially recorded infection rates in the world. How did this happen? We spoke to The Guardian's Ireland correspondent,
5: Rory Carroll, to find out. Hi, this is Rory Carroll. I'm The Guardian's Ireland correspondent based in Dublin. The current situation in Ireland is extremely grim. We're still among the highest rates in the world for infection. Hospitals are under huge pressure. More than 2,000 COVID-linked patients are in hospitals and we're approaching around 200 intensive care patients. And this is far above the the rates from from the peak uh, from spring of last year. The situation got so bad in Ireland in a... It's basically a form of a national whiplash because Ireland had a quite a, a severe lockdown, um, which ended just at the beginning of December. When we came out of that lockdown, Ireland had actually the lowest uh, COVID infection rates per capita in the European Union. And so the government then decided to open things up. Families, uh, three households were allowed to meet. And the plan was that we could have a sort of, in the government's phrase, a meaningful Christmas. Um, with some restrictions. But what nobody expected, not even the worst case scenarios of public health officials, was this calamity that unfolded in record time. In the space of four weeks, we went from being the lowest in the European Union to having the world's highest rate. The reason for it largely was socialising. The Irish are a very convivial race, and it was Christmas, and we love Christmas. In addition to that, by late December The UK variant, which is so much more transmissible, uh, was becoming much more common in Ireland. And that wasn't the cause for why things exploded here, but certainly it's the reason why it's going to be so difficult now to get those numbers back down again. It's still difficult to read the political impact of this. I mean, clearly the government is now defensive over the fact that they... I decided to open up the economy and loosen restrictions in early December, and the government has acknowledged that they've and they said they they got that wrong, and so I think the government will pay a political price down the line because up until this disaster, uh, the feeling was that the this government and its predecessor had had a relatively good COVID in that they'd managed to keep rates relatively low. Yet there's also a sense that it was society at large was was, was culpable, um, because. Had people kind of respected the the regulations, even under the relaxed regime over Christmas, we would not be seeing the disaster that we have now. Um, So I still think it's a bit early days to see exactly how much damage has been inflicted on the government. But um, it's pretty clear that the reputation has taken a battering and we just need to see how that plays out.
0: Asia, in six weeks, Ireland went from having the lowest COVID infection rate in the EU to having the highest infection rate in the world at one point. And Dr. Mike Ryan, who's the Executive Director of the World Health Organization and Irish himself, puts it down to increased social mixing and reduction of physical distancing. Is it a cautionary tale for Britain, do you think?
1: Yes, well, it's a, it's a cautionary tale for, you know, anywhere on, on the planet, because this is a virus which loves a, a crowd. And, you know, you you just can't get, get away from, from that, that, that. And that is an incontrovertible fat and it was actually really interesting um, hearing that report and also just how quickly you know the, the the virus took off but then we've seen that ourselves here you know when when things were eased up we just saw the cases sort of shoot up again so yeah it's a, it's a cautionary tale for, for everyone everywhere.
0: I hear we keep hearing that lockdown fatigue is stopping people from taking it as keenly or seriously, observing it as keenly as as they did in April. Do you think that's true or do you think uh, people are looking around for excuses to uh, get the government off the hook for its own inconsistencies?
2: Well, I mean... People are fatigued, and I'm sure that none of us are like, this is fucking thrilling, let's carry on as long as we... (laughs) No, but we're sticking with it, aren't we? We're trying to stick Uh, with it, yeah. Yeah, uh, I think that a big part of it has been the terrible communications throughout the entirety of the thing, right? I I guess, like, on average, isn't there the thing that rules on average have changed every couple of days? Mm. And so, to a certain extent, there is going to be a, a combination of some fatigue, some genuine ignorance of what is and isn't allowed because it's a different thing quite frequently. Uh, But I I feel like for the most part, people are still doing their bit or doing as much as they can, particularly now that we know. I'm I'm perfectly content to stay holed up in my little box until someone is kind enough to jab something in my arm. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. And possibly even a vaccine.
2: (laughs) (laughs) In fact, to, to that point, I have literally just got a text from my father uh, that's come up on my computer here saying uh he's forwarded it from the NHS saying, Dear Mr. Shah, you're booked in for your vaccination. So Yay,
0: you. that's good. Well, my dad's getting his as well, so everybody's dad's getting his. <gasps> oh, my dad could out
2: vaccinate your dad, Andrew, any my day. Dad, dad
1: dad yeah. My, dad's not, dad my dad's not had his. This is just Islamophobia all over again. <laughs> all right, yeah. how, People how, are how, old, how, honestly, seriously. How, how, how old is your dad, Asia? Oh, he's only like 52. No, he's not. I he's that <laughs> no, old. He's like, I think he's like seventy, seventy-eight 78 or something. But I'm hoping that by the time I get my vaccine, which will be in about three years time, I have, I've been frowning so much in lockdown and my eyesight's gone that I'm hoping I'll be able to get Botox combined with a vaccine <laughs> and I can do the two things at once. That will make my life a lot easier.
0: Brian in America, not observing lockdowns and not doing the mask has has become a cultural badge and a political badge. Can Biden reverse that? I mean, just by you know the by the example of doing it doesn't seem to be enough. You know the fact the fact that Harris and Biden are forever seen in masks doesn't seem to get
3: through. Yeah, I mean, when we look back on this, there's going to be tens of thousands of Americans that died because Trump politicized masks. I mean, there's no other way to look at that. It's like it's the craziest thing too. Like like Herman Cain, who was a presidential candidate you know, 10 years ago is someone who died at a Trump rally. I mean, he died after attending a Trump rally because he was maskless at this big indoor stadium. I mean, literally Trump killed people in his own party, pr- prominent people in his own party because he told them not to wear masks and to go to to mass gatherings. You know, Biden can reverse it to some extent, but I think what he needs to do and what he's going to do is to make it about patriotism. And I, I've, I've been surprised that this hasn't become more of like a thing for, uh, you know, nationalist politicians is to say like the way you can serve your country is just putting a piece of cloth on your face, right? Like that's all we're asking, but it is literally the way that you save huge amounts of money and like other people from dying. So I think that's what Biden's going to do. He's going to say, it's your patriotic duty. He's going to implement a mask mandate on federal property, which is all he can really do. He can't mandate it for the whole country, uh, the same way that state governments can, but yeah, it's going to be a big part of his early days is to say it's you know, 100 days to beat the virus, that sort of idea.
0: Meanwhile, in Singapore, the Ministry of Home Affairs has faced attacks after revealing that private data collected by contact tracing technology is also being used for criminal investigations and more expansively for circumstances where citizen safety and security is or has been affected. We spoke to Kirsten Han, a freelance journalist and activist based in Singapore, to find out more.
4: My name is Kirsten Han. I'm a freelance journalist and activist from Singapore. Singapore is a very Tech optimistic and tech solutionist place. We have a government who is very invested in this idea of digital governance, and COVID gave an opportunity to then find tech solutions as well for this pandemic. So Trace Together and Safe Entry were two such systems that they built during the pandemic. Trace Together uses Bluetooth to uh, identify people that you've been close to, and the data is encrypted and stored on your phone. Safe entry, on the other hand, is this QR code registration system where when you register your phone number, your name, and your ID number, it goes to a centralized server. The controversy of these past couple of weeks was that the government who had previously promised that data for contact tracing would be only used for contact tracing then stood up in parliament and said, actually, under our criminal procedure code, the police have the power to obtain this data and use it for criminal investigations. So security, as well as public law and order, has been used for a long time as justification to override not just individual privacy, but civil liberties as a whole. Because they say, you know, to allow the police to have the power and the and the ability to do their jobs as best they can, then, for example, they need access to contact tracing data, but also things like not granting immediate access to legal counsel when people are being interrogated. So there's a lot of issues in Singapore that are kind of justified on public security grounds that for public safety, we have to do this. You know, at the most extreme end, we even have laws that allow detentions without trial on the grounds of public order and national security. So apart from safe entry and trace together, temperature scanning is very common in Singapore. So you do your safe entry and then they scan your temperature. So if you have a fever, then you, you probably won't be allowed in. And what I've noticed myself going around Singapore is that quite a lot of places like malls have started to adopt temperature scanning that actually uses facial recognition thermal scanning. And the camera can detect whether you're wearing a mask or not while also taking your temperature. It's not clear to me whether it's taking a photo of you and saving it or not. But I I think some of the longer-term users of such technology, they foresee being able to use it for offices, for example, to keep track of their employees going in or out which suggests that even if they're not you know collecting facial data now some of these machines might collect it in the future and i think that's a bit of a concern because we don't even talk about it in singapore they just appear there's no opportunity for someone to say i consent or don't consent to this sort of thing it's just suddenly there and then you use it and i i'm a little concerned that it normalizes this sort of surveillance even more
0: Aisha, given Singapore's human rights record and concerns about contact tracing technology, is this surprising? Would you expect this in, in Singapore?
1: Gosh, I mean, I, I, there was sort of part of me hoping that, you know, all governments would, would do the right thing with this sort of data. Um, so... I was hoping that this wouldn't happen, but I was kind of expecting it to. And I do think this will hinder the, the rollout of, of of contact tracing tech elsewhere. I mean, we had the foreign secretary on, on Times Radio this weekend um, sort of saying possibly they might look at GPS and tracking. Um, you know, they might be considering, you know, facial recognition and, and all of this. And I think there, w- there will be a genuine you know there'll be genuine concerns um about that because let's be honest look who our home secretary is right um so yeah i think that is i think that is a genuine concern do you trust the government with all this really really precious important and potentially dangerous data about us Brian,
0: Singapore has aspirations to be a, quote, smart nation, using technology across its government functions. That's one of those insidious phrases, it's smart nation. Uh, Is this code for bigger and more invasive government?
3: Yeah, I mean, this this is the sort of tension here, is that as you get more technology to solve problems, you also can abuse the technology, and Singapore is a great example. And Singapore, you know, by the way, is a relatively benign form of authoritarianism compared to most dictatorships, right? Where, where you have much, much worse intent. So, you know, this is something where we're, we're just seeing, I think, the tip of the iceberg where Singapore is getting lots of attention, but other authoritarian governments are going to abuse it much in much worse ways to track dissidents and things like that, not just to find criminals. Uh, you know, I, I, I have no technological know-how whatsoever on these questions because I'm a political scientist, but I've always wondered why, why they didn't just say, look, we're setting up a separate data center for, for test and trace, It's going to have computers that are set up to nothing else. The servers will be completely uh, separated from everything else. And as soon as the parliament says COVID is over, we are literally going to blow them up on TV. It would be a great opportunity (laughs) for everyone to enjoy it. You could have an entertainment, you know, sort of... Uh, Are you basing
2: your COVID strategy on the end of the dark night? (laughs) that's literally what happens at the end of the time
3: (laughs) you should basic no but that's but that would actually work right it would actually (laughs) work because you'd say to people like look we're asking for like 12 months of data to make sure that you don't die and to show you that we're serious about being trusted with this we'll have us we'll have a self-destruct timer on the data server Uh, and
2: morgan freeman will blow it up exactly
3: (laughs) Blowing stuff up does play quite
0: well with the more traditional conservative base. So, yeah, I can say that.
3: I'm telling you, it would sell very well in America. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Finally, Wikipedia is now 20 years old, or at least that's what it says in its Wikipedia page, which you should probably check. Citation needed. The online encyclopedia was launched in January two thousand and one, and now has more than fifty five million articles in three hundred nine languages, which you consulted over fifteen billion times a month. And famously, it's non profit, unlike Facebook and Google. Brian, many academics often tell their students not to use Wikipedia because you know, of you know fact pollution and so forth. Anybody can edit the pages. Is it a questionable tool? Should we should we not base our society so much on? Well, go and check the wiki.
3: You know, I, I, have to say this, I'll admit it, uh, as a professor, I use Wikipedia all the time, um, but I use it as like a gateway, right? So you sort of like find out the basics about something and then you check it. And if somebody ever cites Wikipedia in an essay, they're in trouble, right? It's not, it's not an acceptable source, but it's a good way to sort of like figure out the basics about stuff. What I've, what I've always wanted to, to to test myself is now that I have a Wikipedia page, I want to know if I can use it in various life circumstances. Like if somebody tests whether I am who I say I am, or this actually happened recently. Somebody asked me if I was 18. I have no idea why I'm in my (laughs) mid-30s. But when I was trying to buy a single bottle of beer, I was stopped at the supermarket, and I wanted to see if I could show them my Wikipedia page, which shows my age and has my photo as proof of identity. And of course, Denise at the local supermarket did not accept. So I was (laughs) upset about that. But <laughs> and did
2: you not say to her, but I'm
3: Brian Paul class, an
2: American <laughs> political theorist? <laughs> and, and, well,
3: I love I loved what I loved particularly was the idea that I had gone to <laughs> such trouble to fake a Wikipedia page in order to get a single bottle of beer.
2: Yeah, tell you what, you wouldn't have these sorts of problems in Golden Valley, Minnesota, I'll tell you that much. Yeah,
3: I, 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 I like the idea of Wikipedia
0: pages fake ID, but I think you're focusing on the wrong thing, Brian, which is I miss the times when people would ask me, are you old enough to buy that? A very, very, very long time yeah, ago. Well,
1: will I take you back to my point of the Botox and the combined vaccine.
0: There, there you go. The last time I was, I was asked for a, my age when buying something, I think it was a, a horn of mead um, with straw in it. Um, Wikipedia, though, I mean the editing wars and the kind of the the, the levels of fact and, and, and veracity and, and and so on. This is clearly going to be the way that culture and records are are put together in the future for a very long time. Uh, you know, it could possibly be it could settle down as you know collaborative media and collaborative history it could actually be the way we do history for the next century should we be looking more carefully at who's allowed to edit or you know who, who watches the watchman and so forth
3: yeah i mean i I, th- I think there is obviously um more self-correcting than we realize mm. so you know people edit this stuff they they play with it but there's actually like a group that swoops in and fixes it quickly and like i've 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 looked you know this is uh, me showing that i'm i'm vain by looking at my own wikipedia page but like People edit the weirdest stuff. Like they edit the formatting of of various aspects. Like it says that I have, you know, had an op ed in the New York Times, and like somebody will go in on their free time and make sure that the "the" is capitalized in the New York Times. And that level of detail for someone as insignificant as myself is like okay. I actually have some. I have some faith that there are people who are really into getting this stuff right and normally you know wikipedia is right it's it's got real problems occasionally but especially during contentious events and real-time you know events unfolding but like for the most part it's pretty accurate it's amazing
2: yeah and i mean they've even someone someone here called a Shah even uh, edited it to acknowledge the fact that you once wrote a published book called i've got a big stinky butt and how i live with my stinky Butt." <laughs> <laughs> um...
0: there we go well there's a, the wisdom of crowds in action there I have you met crowds
2: um
3: <laughs>
0: Uh, ironically, there are numerous sort of off, offshoots and rival sites, including the bizarre Conservapedia, which is Wikipedia, but written from a conservative fundamentalist Christian uh, point of view. Uh, heavily slanted. Have you checked it out here? Managed, managed to check any of these parallel
2: Wikipedias? That's my homepage, baby. All right. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm living it. It's not something I dip in and out of. It's my life. Stop the steal. <laughs>
0: Are you sure are you a, are you a big user I mean some p- pages do get embroiled in it was and can become incomprehensible sometimes I
1: mean I suppose i I suppose what Brian was seeing is probably my kind of usage it's a good if you if you're like researching something really quickly then it, it can give you a, a good in but then I always tend to try and check other sources just because i'm I'm really nervous about kind of you know getting caught out um but I think everybody does use it um A lot, but I haven't actually looked at my page because I get so much abuse on Twitter. I don't dare look at it. And I just think also, who are the types of people who are going to be like editing my page? I just sort of shudder to think, really.
0: Uh, I have been suckered uh, when I well, I once asked Mick Hucknall about his line of uh, hot chili sauces, and he said, well, You've been reading Wikipedia, haven't you? <laughs> <stuck that in laughs> so it, it does happen. Uh, I, I did also see that somebody with a grudge against the village of Denshaw in Greater Manchester changed their Wikipedia page to call it the home of an obese population of sun starved, sheep hurling yokels with a brothel for a pub and a lingering tapeworm infection. <laughs> Well, how can you be so? I've been mean there, about on that?
2: Tour, I think. <laughs> yeah,
0: um, it, it is. You know, the, the, these these sort of events do th- throw themselves up, don't they? It's just like part of trolling has become, you know, sort of so central to to what people do in their political lives. There is actually a page for Wikipedia hoaxes on Wikipedia, including some that have stayed up for like over a decade. There was um, there was a page on synchronized football, a fake version of football supposedly popular in Norway, never existed. <laughs> a medieval torture device called the Spanish tickler. Which you can <laughs> envisage, a non-existent one-man play set in Wales called "To the Hills with the Angerat," <laughs> and my favourite, uh, the Reich Corps of the Trombone, a fictitious Nazi organization of trombonists <laughs> created by Joseph Goebbels for propaganda purposes. <laughs> now that one, I, I, I can thoroughly yeah, believe, I can
2: believe it. I don't believe that last one. <laughs> Just uh, uh, my, my favourite Wikipedia story is that. This is um, over a decade ago now. Uh, I remember my friend Alex telling me that he'd been at a party where he was just talking to someone, and it was like oh, the other night. I found myself, you know, up at like 2 a.m. and I was on the Wikipedia, but I got on this Wikipedia troll, and I ended up on uh, the page for it was like a particular kind of Rolling Stock of Train or what have you. And I was just reading that and thinking, what the hell am I doing with my life? And the guy uh, opposite with him was like, I wrote that page. <laughs>
0: Well, I think the last word on this one should go to The Onion, of course, who, who had a story in 2006. Wikipedia, the online reader-edited encyclopedia, honoured the 750th anniversary of American independence this year with a special featured section. At 750 years old, the US is by far the world's oldest surviving democracy, said founder Jimmy Wales. <laughs> According to our database, that's 212 years older than the Eiffel Tower, 347 years older than the earliest known woolly mammoth fossil, and a full 493 years older than the microwave oven.
1: <laughs> Don't you mean microwave? <laughs>
0: (laughs) So that's the end of the podcast, which means it's time to ask our panel for their escape routes from politics, the films, books, TV shows, music or whatever that's providing them with sweet respite. Aisha, what is diverting your mind away from politics at the minute?
1: Well, having just uh, watched Bridgerton, which I, I'm afraid to say I absolutely loved, it was—it's basically like the TV version of HRT for women of about my age <laughs> and, and sort of <laughs> disposition. I'm now watching The Great on Channel Four, um, which is loosely about sort of Catherine uh, the Great, and I have to say I'm enjoying it tremendously.
0: Mm. What's the appeal? What's so centrally wonderful about this?
1: Oh, we just love a costume drama, don't we? We're so predictable. <laughs>
2: just- predictable
0: <laughs> how about you i right hear there's
2: a new series of grand designs andrew oh right there's okay a, there's, there's a new series of grand designs uh two episodes out thus far uh, both of which i cannot recommend highly enough uh the first of which is a sort of demented aristocrat uh spending more money than god on a weird house in a graveyard and the second of which is a sort of normal young married couple who i don't want to like spoil anything about it because it's absolutely incredible and i had tears in my eyes at the end of it wonderful Uh,
0: the guy who's building a house on a graveyard has he never read stephen king (laughs) this is never a good idea (laughs) in fact if i did actually read that america's political troubles were down to the fact that it was built on an indian burial ground it's kind of true uh brian how about you
3: yeah, I mean, I, I read that there's uh, psychology research that says that the lockdown makes us want to go back to things that are nostalgic, and I've been rewatching all of the Simpsons. So oh, I my, uh, my Disney Plus subscription. I the, did that in lockdown one. It's great. Yeah, it's 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 going well, I'd say so far. And then uh, also, this is my my <laughs> the thing that I do that's very non-professorial is I um, I compete in a fantasy league around the american reality tv show the bachelor <gasps> and a new season uh, has just come out the the season i think it's 25 of the bachelor oh my god
1: i, I okay. love that show brian i never would have had you down as as, as a fan of the bachelor you live and learn no, you no, live no, and you you know. learn just
3: a fan, Aisha. i i have organized a fantasy league for like the last eight years in which we draft players <laughs> We had our draft last night. Actually, I think we've done very well for ourselves. So,
0: (laughs) twenty-five seasons—that's more than the Premier League. Indeed, (laughs) God. Well, I've also been uh, immersing myself in nostalgia with One Division on Disney Plus because being a big nerd, One Division, in which the Scarlet Witch and her robot husband division find themselves trapped in nineteen fifties television. One episode is like uh, "I Dream of Ginny," another is uh, like "Green Acres," and it's a brilliantly clever. Past A, it's a pastiche of old television and classical sitcoms and that sort of, uh, you know, very cozy world of the 1950s. And also it has a Truman Show layer to it because you're never sure what's real. And the backstory of all the Avengers stuff is seeping into it episode by episode. I think it's just brilliantly done. Who knew that Paul Bettany was such a good comic actor? So WandaVision, you know, yet again, my Disney's plus, uh, subscription gets extended. I keep thinking I'm going to cancel it. This one's going to run and run and that's the end of this week's bunker thanks to our special guest brian class thank you thanks to aisha hazarika
1: thank you very much
0: and thanks to our Shah. cheers day safe everyone we'll be back tomorrow with another bunker daily with mary trump and the full-length show this time next week don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes you can also back the bunker on the crowdfunding platform patreon just see our twitter or facebook or search patreon bunker podcast and backers get an honorary salute on the show and here are some now
1: Big thanks from me to Chris
2: Ellis, Charles Brown, and Dawn Bright. <laughs> and thanks from me to Seamus McCann, Morgan Hill, and Contacts Music.
0: And finally, hello and best wishes from me to Gary Frank, Darren Levely, and Marco. We'll see you all next time.
5: The Bunker was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison, with Ahir Shah, Aisha Hazarika,
2: and Brian Class. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofraniewicz. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.